0: did good stuff. All right, we are in church history, and we are going through the modern age, and we're looking at, we're still looking at, like, post-war conflicts, things that have come off of a ripple effect off of World War II. So we're starting to look at, in the 1950s, and we've got more zaniness to talk about. We've got some really neat things going on, and some kind of kooky things going on. Because like last week, I promised we'd start with the assumption of Mary because that became dogma in 1950. Anybody familiar when I say the Assumption of Mary within... Citations. All right. If you recall, (laughs) Pope Pius XII, this is the guy that we talked about did nothing to stand against Hitler. He's also the guy we talked about last week that um, gave Mother Teresa her new congregation in Calcutta. But he's also the guy who made the Assumption of Mary church dogma. When I say church dogma, does anybody know... That's kind of an official term in, in Catholicism. Anybody know what's the difference between dogma and just something what we think? Okay. Throne, ex-cathedra? Yeah. Sort of like that. It, it is, it's, it's a truth revealed by God which the magisterium of the church has declared as binding. In other words, everybody's got to believe this. You can't question this. This is truth and it will always be truth. Yada yada. So, Pius declared, quote, By the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, of the blessed apostles Peter and Paul, and by our own authority, we pronounce, declare, and define it to be a divinely revealed dogma, unquestionable truth, that the Immaculate Mother of God, the ever-Virgin Mary, all of which never had any other children, clearly, a scripture indicated by Jesus' brothers and sisters, The Immaculate Mother of God, the ever-Virgin Mary, having completed the course of her earthly life, was assumed, body and soul, into heavenly glory. She was physically taken up into heaven, whole, just like Enoch and Elijah, and most importantly, Jesus, right? In the same way she was. Now, purposely left it a little ambiguous as to whether or not she died first. Because at the end of her life, she was taken up. And you go, well, does that mean she died, was taken up? Like, oh, does that help? Yeah. If, if any of you nod off, it's because of the time change. <laughs> Everything's because of the time change. But um, so, it, but he purposely left it a little ambiguous. Was it that she died and then rose again, like like Jesus, or just taken up into heaven, like Enoch and Elijah? Not the first time this come up. It's just the first time this has been made dogma of the church. Uh, Back in the 4th century they talked about it. The Pope Sergius back in the 8th century. Pope Leo IV back in the 9th century. This has been bouncing around for a while. It's just that Pope Pius says now it's dogma. It's unquestionably what the Catholic Church is now believing. And he used scripture to prove it. Very clear from scripture. He gave three basic scripture chunks. Genesis 3.15, God cursed the serpent, right? And he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Who else could he possibly be talking about as the woman except Mary? Isn't it her offspring that crushes Satan's heel? Is it Mary's offspring that crushes crushes Satan under his heel? Yes, therefore, the woman must be Mary, clearly. Thank you for all agreeing with me. All right. First group. Really, you're just gonna? Okay, let them go. First Corinthians fifteen fifty four. Paul assures us that when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Is there any more clear expression of this? This victory over death, than God saving His own mother from it. He will eventually, but His mother is the first fruits. Is there a more beautiful picture than that? Is there a more beautiful picture in your head than Jesus saving his own mother? Jesus saving his own mother. You don't care about his mother? You don't care about his mother? mother? (laughs) Okay. No, she's at the first. She's at the first one. And what did Jesus say when when they said, blessed is the woman who bore you? He said, yes, and I will save her first. (laughs) Clearly. (laughs) All right, you are making a mistake of looking at other verses, and you need to stop it, all right? My point here is, how dangerous is it to build theology on what makes you feel that that is beautiful? Is this a beautiful image? Yeah, but I don't think that's what the text is saying. So you're robbing me of this beautiful image? No. You, just, you invested a beautiful image into something that's thats not what the verse is saying. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So he wants me. He wants me happy in my marriage. And he wants me to marry this woman. What? That verse has nothing to do with that. But it makes me feel so good. But that verse has nothing to do with that. How dare you steal that beauty from me. Think about that the ne- next time that somebody expresses something. Oh, yeah. Well, I think there's also beauty in holiness. Absolutely. And you don't have, holiness cannot stand with sin, and so you've got to make some hard choices. Well, and, and there's a lot of things that, there are a lot of, uh, rainbow shrimp, or is it rainbow shrimp? No. shrimp, magic shrimp, are beautiful, and they're evil, they're horrible things. They're beautiful. There's to be able to appreciate what beauty you're actually looking at at any given moment. To be able to see it in this context and say, "This is what this verse is saying. This is what this passage is saying." I don't want a beauty. Well, I'll even apply what you said directly to this. I don't necessarily want a beauty that you're investing into it. If I have to, if I have to remove the holiness and the purity of what I'm reading in that text. And well, if we go earlier, it says we hit it. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean context. Oh yeah, but the, but his argument was, it's such a beautiful image. You know, well, arguably, but that doesn't make it true just because it's beautiful. In Psalm one twenty-three or thirty-two, the psalmist sings about going up to Jerusalem to worship, and this was the kicker for him. He said, "Let us go to his dwelling place." Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might, the ark of the covenant. May your priests be clothed with righteousness. May your saints sing for joy. Since heaven is the new Jerusalem, yes? Is there anything in scripture that says heaven is the new Jerusalem? Sure. And since our Lord Jesus rose up into heaven, yes? And this is talking about the Lord rising. Then, since Mary is clearly the ark of the new covenant... Which was, which was a view of the Catholic Church at the time. She saves us by carrying us all through the storms of life like a mother carries her infants. Isn't that a beautiful word picture? Mother Mary carries us like, a, like, a, like, like she's our mom through the storms of life, just like the ark. It's a beautiful word picture. Therefore, it must be true. Then clearly, this is talking about Mary rising into heaven like Jesus had risen into heaven. That's what the psalmist was writing about, yes? If uh, if that uh, assumption about Mary being the Ark, of the New Ark of the Covenant, is true, then that is logical. Even if, even if Mary is the Ark of the New Covenant, which what? But even if that doesn't mean that this is what this is talking about. This is talking about the Lord coming to Jerusalem with us as we went in the Ark of the Covenant to worship Him. Please come with. The, please be with us when we're worshiping You in Jerusalem. There is at least a logical application of that, but even that is like, just because that's what happened here, that does not mean that it's talking about anything in the New Testament. Yes, one of my professors uh, at, at seminary at Trinity, a guy named D.A. Carson, loved telling us a quote from his dad, who had been a pastor A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. When you rip it out of its context, you can do anything with anything. Inherently dangerous. It also teaches you not to look at the other texts, because oh, yeah. I have a friend who has a Catholic friend that argues with her that Jesus did not have siblings, that dogma thing, and she will not look at other scripture at all. And, and I want to be careful, yes, I want to be careful when they say that. I don't ever want to sit there and say, this is what Catholics do, because Covenanters do this and Baptists do this. It's just, we got a whole Pope doing this at the moment, and that's right. Um, But yes, and and any given, especially, especially, any church, I'm going to say this very very carefully, any church that is quite certain that they have a really nifty idea all figured out. And yes, there are churches, the Catholic Church is very big into that concept, so yes, they, they will follow that. But any church, any church, our church, Baptist churches, Methodist churches, whatever, Any church that is quite certain that they have a nifty idea all figured out, and then they go looking for Scripture to make it work, inherently dangerous. Inherently dangerous. And inherently suspect. You should question. So the moment somebody says, we got this nifty idea all figured out, and by the way, you can't question it, because if you question it, what's wrong with you? Like, ah, see, no. That should be multiple red flags waving. So did something precipitate Pius doing this? I mean, because that's an awfully strong statement. What made him make it? He loves Mary. This has been floating around for centuries. This idea that surely Mary did. What precipitated the idea that Mary had never sinned? What precipitated the idea that Mary was a virgin her whole life? Once you get this nifty idea in your head, it leads to other nifty ideas. And then you hold on to it and it becomes something where you go, my grandfather and great-grandfather and great-great-grandfather all believed that Mary had a third eye behind her ear. I don't know. Is this like, what's what's that stuck in there? Then once you say, okay, okay, Mary didn't actually have a a third eye, then you go, I've seen paintings. Michelangelo made the third eye Mary sculpture. Are you saying that's wrong? Well, people are emotionally invested in, but I love my mom, and my mom believed this, and so you're seeing my mom. Because there's always that ripple effect to, to any kind of doctrinal stuff where you say, Yeah, I, I think such so and such. Like, what are you saying about my, my mom? What are you saying about my church that I grew up in? Yeah. I wasn't actually, wasn't actually saying anything about that. Um, or maybe even a movement after World War II, too, too, if he had bad slack for not saying anything against the Nazis. And so then this was a way to PR. That's interesting. That I is. That is a possibility. Or at least at the very much of, like, at the, at the very least is, i hope when I get to say stuff. You know, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's, I didn't even think about the sociological thing of, after all the flack that he's been given. Well, and all of the disillusionment with the horror and just something be beautiful. Oh, hey, and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a mom would say a I promised here. myself I wouldn't cry. <laughs> so the Eastern Orthodox Church said, sure, well, let's clarify, she was dead first, Okay. She was dead, but she was just the first fruits of those who had risen from the dead. Like Paul talked about. Still kind of taking these out of context. Um, early Calvinist Heinrich Bullinger said, Yes, yes, Mary's most holy body was carried to heaven by the angels. Yes. But very few Protestants ran with that. It's not a big, About the only ones that do are the Episcopals and the Anglicans. And they have what they refer to as the falling asleep of the Blessed Virgin Mary feast on August 15th. So, if you're ever hanging with Anglicans or Episcopals and there's the whole August 15th Mary feast, you know. So that's, that's when she was assumed into heaven, and I go, like, well, technically, you can have a chat. But speaking of weirdness, 1950, the New World Translation of the Scriptures w- were published. Witnesses. Well, Jehovah. Jehovah's Witnesses. Up to this point, the Jehovah's Witnesses had exclusively used the King James Bible in their services because they were kind of considering themselves fundamentalists and all the fundamentalists had held on to this while all these new versions of scripture had been translated. But in 1946, the president, Nathan Knorr, proposed a new translation. He's like, we need to get rid of the the archaisms. We need to bring the the King James text up to modern scholarly standards. We need to fix various theological problems. We need to have our own decent version of the scriptures. And if you say, wait a minute, what about all those new ones that have been made? We've just been talking about so many new translations in the last decade that have been made. Why don't they use one of those? I want to underscore Fixed various <laughs> theological problems. That's kind of the big issue. We need to make sure that we have a Bible that clarifies the stuff that we believe. Because we've come up with lots of nifty ideas, and now we want to make sure that the verses support those. Right? Right? The translator's rationale, they plopped it in the foreword to the New World Translation. Honesty compels us to remark that while each of them, other translations, has its points of merit, they have fallen victim to the power of human traditionalism (coughs) in varying degrees. Consequently, religious traditions, hoary with age, have been taken for granted and gone unchallenged, uninvestigated. These have been interwoven into the translations to color the thought. It's bad to have a nifty idea that you then weave into your translation to color the thought, right? Okay. In support of a preferred religious view, an inconsistency, uh, an unreasonableness have been insinuated into the teachings of the inspired writings. The Son of God taught that the traditions of creed-bound men made the commandments and teachings of God of no power and effect. The endeavor of the New World Bible Translation Committee has been to avoid this snare of religious tra- uh, traditionalism. We're going to not let the traditions of men color our translation of Scripture. Two, mo- the two most famous avoidances, they t- tweaked a lot of things, but the two most famous ones are that they use the word Jehovah all the time, and their translation of John 1.1. So let's talk about those real quickly. Jehovah, the name that King James Bible uses for the proper name of God, right? And where do the no, let me ask back up. Proper name of God Yahweh in Hebrew, right? Y H W H. Yahweh. And modern English translations use Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, right? To show that we're talking about Yahweh, but in deference to the fact that Jews never actually verbalize the name Yahweh, we're not going to write it as Yahweh. So that when you're reading through it, you see Lord, right? Okay, another, uh, again, yeah, it's also called the tetragrammaton, which just is a fancy word for four letter word. So, yes, the original four letter word is Yahweh. Anyway, another name that you also see as Lord in Scripture is Adonai, which is just the Hebrew word for die in charge, right? It's Lord. So, a totally different word, which is why you have the capital L, little o, little r, little d, right? Jehovah, that word is the English corruption of the German way of combining the consonants of Yahweh with the vowels of Adonai. Did you say corruption? Yes. Because no German would pronounce this word Jehovah. Right? How how does the German pronounce the the J sound? The J? Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's... If you're going to write Jehovah in, 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 in German... You'd do it with a J and a V English went, like, yeah, Jehovah! Because we're English. We don't know how to pronounce other people's stuff. Burbanis? San Joe's? No. Desplains? We have no idea how to pronounce other people's languages. It'd be roughly equivalent if Elmer Fudd used Laura's values vowels to say Randy's name and it came out Wanda. is not that? <laughs> Which is not Randy's name! So every time you go, his name is Jehovah. God hears you go, Wanda. Well, like, He's never going to answer to that. Anyway. And then another word that you hear in scripture a lot of times is Elohim. Which is the word for God. Actually it's the word for God's plural. Which is funky because it even sometimes we'll use a, a, singular, a singular verb to deal with the plural noun, and you can have a lot of fun with that if you start unpacking that in Hebrew. Anyway, once you get into the New Testament, you got words like kurios, which means guy in charge. Right? It's another word for Lord, and it doesn't have to be God, but it's talking about the guy in charge. Or theos, meaning God. right? All these things are different ways to refer to to the Lord. Right? New World Translation translates all five of those as Jehovah. 7,210 times in Scripture. It's all just Jehovah. So that they avoid the snare of religious translation. Because you don't want to read into things with your nifty idea, right? Because that would be bad if you read into Scripture and colored your translation with your own nifty ideas. 7,210 times. Not the best way of translating something if you are actively, consciously reading into it. Yes? Are you the New Testament? like in the Gospels when we refer to him as Jesus as Lord, they say Jehovah? Um, it actually depends on the context, but if they'll talk about the Lord is, you know, if Jesus is talking about the Lord, right. he'll say Jehovah. What about if he says my father? Do they yeah, I'll leave my father, yeah. But the forward from the New, the New World Translation explains that considering it a sacrilege to use some substitute as curious or the scribes, inserted the Tetragrammaton at its proper place in the Greek version text. Which is interesting, you go, wait, you stuck the English corruption of the German version of the Hebrew word in its proper context in the Greek text? What? What? Why would the Jehovah's Witnesses go out of their way to mangle the text so that every time you heard them talking about God in the Bible you hear them say Jehovah. It's in their name! It's product placement! And we're the only ones that are doing this right. And I was going to say every cult, but every cult and half the denominations in the world love to have some tangible way of saying, by the way, we're the only ones who are doing this right. Everybody else is doing this wrong. We're doing this right. So, yeah, somebody said for that. And then there's John one one, And I know we've talked about this before, but it's worth unpacking this just a smidge. Because you should know this. Okay, from the NIV. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? He's God, been God from the before the get-go. And this is the way it looks in the Greek. And no, I don't expect you to actually learn Greek. But that's, work with me on this one for just a sec. Just hang on before you just go, oh, I don't understand. Work with me. If you look, you've got words like ha and, and tom, which are... We're talking about the word. In the beginning was the word. And the word was was God, etc. Because you've got, you got a the here. So there's an implication here of the kind of concretizing this. He is God. Right? But you'll notice there's no version of the sitting in front of this theos. Sitting in front of this word. There's no definite article here. So does that mean that he's only a god. Because there's no definite article here. It's, there's the the god over here. He is certainly god. But this might just be a god. If you don't have a definite article in Greek, it's usually, maybe you're just talking about he's divine. Or maybe you're just talking about he's a god. He's a cookie, not the cookie. Now, before you just say, I read it in the NIV. And it, there's no a there. It's just You'll notice there's no definite article in front of RK beginning, either. Right? But we don't say in a beginning, do we? No, we say in the beginning. We still translate it the beginning because something is called Colwell's Rule. And you, again, I'm not going to ask you to necessarily remember this, but the basic idea is, in Greek, if you have a definite noun that comes before a verb of being, like is, am, were, was, that sort of thing, then you drop the definite article before it. You don't use it if, it, if you're sticking it first. just I know people get the a frowny face. <laughs> there's no white def, no definite article in front of RK here, right? And yet, we have the beginning, because we realize it's not in a beginning. It's in the very beginning of all things. So according to Colwell's rule, if you have this definite noun in front of a verb of being, you you figure it out you say okay it's still a definite amount even if it doesn't have a definite article in front of it therefore if we do it that way with the beginning we should probably do it that way with the theos but the god the word was actually god the word was with god and the word was god you kind of have to figure it out in context now if you sit there and go how would i ever Explain that to a Jehovah's Witness who wants to say in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was a God. How would I ever explain it to them? You go, because they say the beginning. They already follow the exact same rule. They follow the rule at the beginning of the verse and they disregard the rule at the end of the verse. By the way, there's tons of verses, in the, in, in, even in John, just in John, just in the first couple chapters of John, where they follow Caldwell's rule. They just ignore it here. Because it suits their purposes theologically to think of Jesus as a god, just one of many divine beings. Oh, that's how they get out of trinity. That's part of that's part of it. Yes, it's how they get out of the trinity. They don't want to think of him, to him as God in the flesh. Yes. So, why are the two gods spelled differently? Like the last letters different. To them. No, 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 no. Like in your thing, I'm just curious. Is it like just a matter in the Greek? In the Greek Oh, because it's, it's, um... Is it like the Spanish where it's female or male, you have a... Like no, it's, 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 it's where it's at in the sentence. Where it's at in the sentence. Okay. So. Just... Because, well, I mean, it's behind a preposition. So it's with... Um, he was with him. Why do you say that, that, that uh, male pronoun differently? He and him is technically the same word, it's just different versions. Oh point is, they're not really good at this, is where I'm getting at this there's a lot of reading into things there's a classic transcript of an attorney questioning Fred Franz, who's the head of the editorial department of the New World Translation, back in 1954 where he he says, okay, so you're familiar with Hebrew you're familiar with Greek, Latin Spanish, you can read and follow the Bible in all these different languages and he says, yes, yes, and he's like, yes because you're the head of this translation committee yes, and he's like, so you yourself read and speak Hebrew, yeah, well I don't speak Hebrew. Okay, but you can read Hebrew. You can translate the Bible into Hebrew. Yeah, well, can you, can you translate this verse in, in Hebrew? Which one? The, first, the fourth verse of the second chapter here of Genesis. You mean here? Yes. No. no. I don't actually know Hebrew well enough to translate. Right? I'm familiar with, you know, a lot of the letters and things. You're the head of the editorial department of the translation committee, but you can't actually translate anything. Anyway, on a plus side, nineteen fifty-one, "Life Is Worth Living" debut. Anybody ever? Do you remember? Do you remember the show at all? Okay. Born in El Paso, Texas, a guy named Peter Fulton Sheen moved to Peoria with his family, and actually was an altar boy. that attended mass at St. Mary's Cathedral downtown here in Peoria. He went to Spalding. In fact, he was valedictorian in his class in Spalding here in Peoria. Even though uh, his debate coach once told him, Sheen, you are absolutely the worst speaker I've ever heard. You're horrible. He said that his freshman year. He went on to not only be valedictorian, but also to win two Emmys, consecutive Emmys, being the most outstanding television personality in 1952 and 1953. Because there was a time in history when you could be a Catholic priest on TV and win back-to-back Emmys in 1952 and 1953. Um began speaking on the radio in, 20, in, in 28 and then got his own weekly Catholic Hour radio program from 1930 to 1952. They also made history in 1940 by appearing in the world's first Catholic TV program in, in 1940. It's just a one-off, but still history being made. The exciting title of The Spiritual Symbolism of Television. Seven people watched it. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't really sort of like, cool. Take that. Um. 1951, the DeMont Television Network, which I love. Because all of you, you know, remember growing up the DeMont Television Network, right? <laughs> A network created, so DeMont was an electronics firm that built televisions, could sell televisions. Because there wasn't regular programming. I mean, you just you'd kind of have to flip and see if something happened to be somewhere. Nobody was, was doing television, like, all day. You just have to hope that somebody was airing something. And DeMont's like, nobody's buying our televisions. Let's give them something to watch. Anything. Throw anything up there so that we can click on a TV and there's always something on the TV. Much like typewriter manufacturers, make sure you type typewriter on the top line of the typewriter. right? Look how easy it is to write typewriter. Anyway. QWERTY? Um, so DeMond, DeMond makes their own television network and they're like, fine, we'll do... Um, Religious programming. Let's get some rabbis. Let's get some priests. Let's, anything. Throw anything up there. It doesn't matter. Especially Tuesday at 8 p.m. Graveyard slot. Nothing's going to fly there anyway because it's on against Uncle Milty. Milton Berle on NBC, who owns the airwaves on Tuesday at 8 o'clock. Anything that anybody throws up there is going to do nothing because you can't beat Uncle Milty. Everybody's watching that. He had like an 80% share. I mean, nowadays people are like, oh, if you got in the 30s, that's awesome. Consistently got 80% share of the market consistently. But Sheen's Life is Worth Living actually competed with it. Actually beat him sometimes. It was kind of amazing. He had a regular following of like 10 million viewers. This was huge. On the cover of Time magazine. Because you remember that era when could be, you know, beating the most popular TV show on on the planet. Had a very unique format. I love the fact that he's wearing his pink cape every. <laughs> Back when people wore capes on TV that weren't even superheroes. <laughs> but he's up there. Um, he, he worked for free, which DeMont liked. He didn't have a writing staff, which DeMont really liked. Um, and he basically spoke off the cuff, commenting on... Spiritual, socio-political issues, whatever he felt like talking about that week, everybody just lapped it up with a spoon. He just would sit there and scribble on this chalkboard to make his points. You know, talking about how bad the Soviets are. Or here's what, here's the way John one one should really be. You know, that kind of stuff. Just, just babbling on with whatever he wanted to talk about. He had this piercing eyes, this beautiful, rich voice, and he said really pithy things. I really appreciate his wisdom. He had this, this, this wonderful sense of the soundbite. Can I say something bright that you will remember? Like, <coughs> someday we will thank God not only for what he gave us, but also for that which he refused. When God says no, that can be a blessing. Or, you must remember to love people and use things rather than to love things and use people. Or, moral principles don't depend on a majority vote. Wrong is wrong, meaning that everybody is wrong. Right is right, even if nobody is right. I don't agree with every bit of theology that, that Fulton Sheen believed, but I like this guy. He's very sharp, and he was able to present genuine biblical truth to people in a way that your average Joe could watch on TV and get, and take home with him and go, God, did you see that last night? There was that whole, you know, we ought to thank God sometimes for the stuff that he refuses us. You know, there. that's true. Yeah. Any. But he's also famous for a sense of humor. He had this playful rivalry, rivalry going with Milton Berle back and forth. They were constantly joking with one another and even on their shows against one another. They would comment on each other's shows in their shows. So Berle, who was famous, as famous for stealing other people's material as he was for using crazily old material, said, Well, even Shane uses old material. <laughs> which you gotta like and when Sheen accepted his first Emmy he said I feel it's time to pay tribute to my four writers Matthew, Mark, Luke, John <laughs> which he stole from <laughs> that was Ball's line he said no he's got these writers Matthew, Mark, Luke so Sheen's like I'm totally stealing that and when went, he totally oh well played so. <laughs> you got to like this guy! (laughs) Jesuit magazine America lauded Sheen as the greatest evangelizer in the history of the Catholic Church of the United States. But then he ran afoul of Cardinal Francis Spellman of New York, who made sure that Sheen was taken off TV. Because, I don't think you understand, there's a time for reaching people with the Gospel. There's a time for helping people understand God more, growing closer to the Lord. And there's a time to make sure that your, your particular political edge gets, gets honed. There's a time to make sure that if somebody doesn't agree with you, you just push them off the page. Right? That's important. Long story short, 1955, the U.S. government donates $68 million in surplus food to the Archdiocese of New York under Cardinal Spellman to be distributed to the poor. And Spellman says, Sheen, why don't you make sure that, with all the money you're making, why don't you pay for our distribution of this? She's like, why? I mean, I'm actually donating tons of money, but why should I pay for what you're doing? No, no. Sheen didn't do it, so Spelman, who's a close personal friend of Pope Pius XII, did an end around, and so he's like, okay, I'm going to donate some of my supplies to the, 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 the Office of the, uh, the Society for the Propagation of the Faith, i.e. the Evangelism Office, that Sheen is in charge of in Rome. So he's like, "Here, I'm going to give about like 10 million dollars of it to you guys, so that you can make use of it because you want to propagate the faith, right? And by the way, since I've given it to you, you should you should pay me back for it. You owe me 10 million dollars." She's like, "No." Both the society and the pope sided with Sheen, saying, "No, this is no. You're just trying to get him to give you m- millions of dollars." And so Spellman vowed to destroy Sheen. He blackballed him in New York. He wouldn't let anybody in New York let Sheen speak at their churches. He did everything he could to undermine all of the ministry that he had, and eventually forced him to step away from life as worth living. Because he didn't like him. Sheen wouldn't play ball with him. Sheen was back in the air a few years later, but it was never really the same. Never really kicked back. Give him credit. He wrote 73 books. He pastored churches. He He was in various dioceses. He Two months before he died, Pope John Paul II came and said, wow, you're great, you've done a wonderful job of articulating the Catholic faith. People thank you so much. But this is one of the things where you look at it and you go, but everything you did got hamstrung because somebody just went, I don't like you. Help me out here. Is there anything that we can learn from any of that? Ministries that we say, well, that might be a good ministry, it might not, but quite frankly, it doesn't fit my agenda, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to torpedo it. Have you ever seen ministries work like that? I know I have. I've seen churches that pastors undermine other pastors in simply because they don't like it or simply because they didn't play ball the way they wanted them to. That's a shame. I really like the one I also heard that his whole life he lived as a, a pauper. Oh, yeah. Girl, meet yeah. everybody, extra clothes. Nope. Car, nothing. Well, it's a nifty pink cape, but yes. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, no, he... He he, he gave away tens of millions of dollars. Again, worked for free, because he's like, no, I'm paid by my parish. Gave away tens of millions of dollars to the church and to take care of the poor. Had absolutely no desire for fame, any of that kind of stuff. In fact, in his autobiography, he actually praised Spellman for being such a great cardinal and refused to say anything negative about him. A lot of respect for Fulton Sheen. He did talk about how difficult it is in the church and out of the church sometimes to get things done. Um, and that's about it. That's about the closest you get to him ever saying, I got railroaded. how kind of important. Did you guys say something? No, I just wondered if Eurya has done anything. Like a plaque or mm. a statue or something. Well, they're trying to get his body back here. Yeah. And he is in the process of uh, canonization. They're working, they're working toward him being a saint. So... No. Personally, I think he's already the same. Yeah? You had said he was from El Paso, Texas. But no, El Paso, from- Illinois. Okay. Did they do anything else in El Paso? Texas? I, have no I have no idea. Riverside, Iowa has a plaque that is the birthplace of Captain Kirk, so I'm hoping that El Paso does something. <laughs> <laughs> 1951. 1951, The Last Temptation was was published. Written by the author of Zorba the Greek. Have you ever heard of wildly popular book in, uh, back in, in the 40s. Um, the book echoes uh, the, the author's well, growing admiration of communism and humanism. He's like, I want to write a, 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 the life of Jesus Christ, but I want to write the life of a very human Jesus Christ. He's very confused by the voices he's hearing. He doesn't understand what he's being called to. And Jesus is given one last temptation on the cross that if he would just step off the cross, he could have a long life with Mary Magdalene as his wife and have children and everything would be great you just step off the cross. Immediately, the Christian community went bonkers. The Catholic Church put it on its banned list. The Greek Orthodox Church started pro, uh, proceedings to excommunicate him. They're like, oh, this is horrible, this is horrible, we're going to stop this. Interestingly, one of the <coughs> biggest problems that people had in the book and then later in the movie version, one of the most immediate things that people jump at is they're like, there's a scene where Mary and her family comes and tries to tell people that Jesus has got some sort of brain fever. Clearly, he's crazy and he just needs to come home. People are like, How dare you portray Mary in that one? I remember in college when people are just, they're picketing this movie and they're going, Yo, They say that Mary thought he was nuts. I'm like, Dude, guys, that's in the Bible, right? That, that part's actually in there. There's a lot of problems with this book. Well, there's a lot of problems with this movie. That part's actually in the Bible. Hush. Well, they say he had brothers and sisters. Actually, we know their names, guys. I mean, seriously. Read, read this. But arguably, I had a bigger problem, people should have a bigger problem, with Christ's characterization. In the book, he's a carpenter who makes crosses for the Romans to crucify people on, because he's a collaborator. He feels really bad about it, and, like every night beats himself with whips, and makes sure he wears belts that have spikes on them so he always feels bad about the fact that he's helping the Romans. But, you know, you've got to make a buck. And he just needs a weak character. He'd had a semi-sexual relationship with Mary Magdalene when they were children, and so he felt really bad about that because he's like, that's why she became a prostitute. It's my fault because of the experimentation that we used to do. He gets, as he gets older, he starts hearing God's voice in his head and he's like, clearly, I'm going mad. Maybe God's calling me to ministry. No, I'm going mad. 1988, the, the, the book was actually made into the movie The Last Temptation of Christ by Martin Scorsese. And Willem Dafoe clearly portrays Jesus as if he's crazy, he's gone bonkers. When you hear him preaching, uh, he's he's standing there with a couple of disciples and like three or four people walking past him. He's like, "I I am the bread that you have to eat. I am. And people would walk on past him, you're nuts. Because that's the way that the audience is supposed to see it. He's a very human, very disturbed Messiah. He finally runs into Mary Magdalene again later in life. He's about to go into the desert to be tempted. He's going to go to this monastery and and purge himself of his sin. And he says to her, you should come with me. I've committed many sins. I'm on my way to the desert now to expiate them. Many sins, Mary. But your calamity weighs on me the most. Forgive me, my sister. It's my fault. But I will pay off my debt. She doesn't go. So he has to go by himself. Actually speaks repeatedly of his sins, of his weakness, of his confusion. Because the whole point of this both with the book and with the movie, is to show that if you want a Messiah who understands humanity, he's got to understand the worst of humanity, which means he has to be the worst of humanity. Jesus is no better than you. If you want to have Jesus as a Messiah, the only way that works is you realize he's actually worse than you are. See? Because otherwise he'd be better than you and that would make you worse than him, and nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants to hear that somebody was better than them. No, no, you're better than he was. In the desert monastery, he tells a rabbi, even when I was tiny, I shouted to myself, Oh, what impudence. What impudence. God, make me God. God, make me God. God, make me God. And ever since then, I haven't been in my right mind. I mean, until now, I haven't confessed it to a soul. Ever since that day, I haven't been in my right mind. I am Lucifer. I, I won't be still. I'm a liar. I'm a hypocrite. I, I'm afraid of my own shadow. I, I never tell the truth. I don't have the courage. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. He's finally cleansed from his fears and his sins by the catharsis of sharing with the rabbi. Because that's that's what happened. And that Remember when Jesus went out to the desert to be tempted? That's what happened, right? Ultimately, he comes to the conclusion he has to die by crucifixion to pay for humanity. It's the only thing that can... That's what God wants. So he begs his best friend Judas to betray him, saying, we've got to save the world, you and me. Help me. And Judas is like, I can't do that. Could you betray your master? And Jesus said, no, I don't think I'd be able to. That's why God pitied me and gave me the easier task, to be crucified. The harder thing, the harder thing, is for you to do the hard thing as a human being. I mean, for Jesus to go to the cross, that was easy. You want to have a, have a Messiah realize Jesus is worse at this than you are, and he had the easy job because God realized he was weak. No, no, Judas, he's the hero of the story. You want a hero, look at Judas. While on the cross, an angel offers Jesus the option of a long life, married to Mary, showing a vision of it. And evangelicals and Catholics, both in the book and in the movie, had a real problem with the sex scene between Jesus and Mary. When Jesus says, God sleeps between your legs, and they're, just like, they're horribly offended, and the filmmakers didn't get it, because they're like, it's in a vision. It's not like Jesus really slept with her. I mean, yes, you have naked Jesus naked Mary Magdalene together, but it's just a vision. I don't understand what the problem is. I really don't. Jesus also runs into Paul, telling him he's getting all the facts wrong. He's like, Paul, this isn't what happened. Because Jesus survived for years. He runs into Paul and says, Paul, I'm hearing what you're preaching about me. I I read 1 Corinthians and it's it's horrible. It's not true. But Paul, like Matthew and John had done earlier in the story, says, I I don't care. I don't care about the real story. My story is better. Who cares what actually happened? We're talking faith issues, not fact issues. True or false, What do I care? It's enough that the world is saved. I don't give a hoot about what's true or what's false, or whether I saw him or didn't see him, or whether he was crucified or wasn't crucified. I create the truth. Create it out of obstinacy and longing and faith. I don't struggle to find it. I build it. How does that reflect the world's understanding? Sounds like that's what the book is doing. Oh, well, that's definitely what the book is doing. Does this reflect anything you know about how people view things today? How so? Well, they don't look at scripture as an inerrant. There's a lot of flaws, and there's a lot of stuff in between the lines, like all this stuff. And specifically the argument that's often used is, well, because it's a faith thing. It's about supernatural stuff. It's myth. I mean, beyond specific questions of inerrancy, specific issues, people will walk at the Bible just before they even open it up and will say, well, clearly it's not true. I don't even have to look at any specific issues. I know it's not true because it's a myth. It's like the myth of Perseus or the myth of Redhorn in in the Native American mythology. It's just a myth. So it doesn't matter. All that matters is what you think it means. And yes, even evangelicals in our Bible studies will do this. Anytime we go, well, what this verse means to me is, we can, at those moments, and I'm not picking on any time anybody's ever done that, because I've done that from time to time, but what that oftentimes indicates is a very low impact, not horrible, but still an application of, well, it's not like the verse means anything. The verse means what I feel like it means. And what it means to me is, and if you say, actually... Contextually, I'm pretty sure that's not what the verse means. People can go, but what I thought it meant was beautiful. And you just stole that from me. Oh, uh, context stole that from me. But yeah, the world can sit there and go, well, I don't know if he's, I don't know if he's divine or anything, but I mean, he, who cares if he was actually crucified or not? I mean, he's had some really interesting things that you should learn from. you've got to cherry pick it a little bit, because I sit there and I go, you know what? you got to just love Gotta love who you love. Jesus says, you yeah. know, just love your name. Yeah. He also said, Don't divorce. Well, I mean, it's not like it's inerrant. I mean, you gotta count a cherry pick. If I don't love her anymore, I can divorce her because I love her. And Jesus said, Love who you love. And no, it's not actually what he said. So while on the cross, sees this angel, but thanks to Judas, who comes back later on in the story, talks to an aged Jesus. He figures out that angel is actually Satan trying to tempt him. And so he begs God to go back in time. He's like, can I please go back to the cross and jump back on the cross and please just forgive your selfish, unfaithful son and let me go back and die on the cross like I was supposed to. Jerusalem is burning. Oh, you can't see the picture. It looks a little crazy in this picture. But he's like, Jerusalem is burning because the, the Romans are burning. And please, please let me do this. And so he goes back on the cross and dies Nothing necessarily about a resurrection or anything. The whole point is to humanize and de-deify Christ. There's this massive outcry, 1951, they're burning the books. Massive outcry in 1988 when the movie came out. I don't know if, for those of you old enough to remember, huge outcry. Churches picketing things. But the crucial thing to note here, and the reason I go into this much detail, is that even with all that outcry from Christians, so many churches, so many people picketing and everything, The story's basic take on Jesus, that he's just some guy, probably confused, but said some neat things. The story's basic take on faith, well, it's not like it's true, but it's what, you know, moves you. And, you know, you shouldn't think that somebody's better than you, I mean, you're better than they are. Faith is just what makes you feel closer. All that, yeah, that's now society's prevailing mindset. We burned the books in 51, we boycotted theaters in 88, and this is what the world tends to think about. So I sit there and I go, well what do we learn from that? Yeah. Well just like boycotting and it burning things that you know it's not the way to solve them, Maybe need to like talk about them instead of just like shut down. Converse? <laughs> <laughs> how old are you? You must be ancient. Because you know, I'm nearly twenty. Nearly 20! Well, I don't know if you realize this, but teenagers today are incapable of conversing. No, of course you should converse. Now, I'm not saying that... It's perfectly fine if you say, I have no desire to go see this movie. And it's perfectly fine if you look at somebody and go, actually, I wouldn't encourage you to go see this movie. I would encourage you not to, it's not a very healthy thing. You get to do that. But the idea of saying, if we just boycott this, this mindset will disappear. If we just burn the copies of the book... Nobody will be interested in it. Really? Nobody's going to say the church hates this book. I really ought to pick that puppy up and look at it. The Last Temptation of Christ. Anybody ever actually seen the movie? Okay. It is a decidedly mediocre movie at best. It is incredibly boring. It has some nice moments. Actually, I, my favorite moment is David Bowie as Pontius Pilate. But, <laughs> oh, he rocked it. No, seriously, that was awesome. But um, But the movie itself is... Not very good, and it only opened in like six art theaters somewhere. And it was nothing until there was this huge public outcry. Oh, then it got a nationwide distribution. It's like, maybe, yeah, maybe uh, hullabaloo, maybe explosions of vitriol and emotion, maybe that's not the way to deal with this. Maybe the way to deal with stuff like this is to say, oh, you just opened the door for conversation. Let's talk about this. Let me explain why that isn't Jesus. I've had several conversations at comic book stores with people about the fact that they have a new Thor, who's a human being. In the comic, they even said, because we feel like mankind, there's never been a God that understands what it means to be human. And we felt that they needed that. I've had multiple conversations in comic book stores pulling out that page and going, you do realize this is what Christianity is is all about, right? is that God understands humanity completely. And I had good conversations, people going, I never thought about it that way. I could have bought all copies of the book and set fire to them, but I don't think that really helps anything. Excommunication didn't go through. They decided not to not to push it that far. And Kazantakis uh, said, you know what? When it comes down to it, I like my version better. Which is ironic, because that's what he had Paul saying. But anyway, he's like, no, my version's more poignant movie, because it's a flawed Jesus who nonetheless chooses to do the right thing. That's the kind of Messiah that we should follow. Not one who died for our sins as if that's a thing. No, one that showed us how to overcome our own sins. In response to the charge of heresy, he told the church leaders, may your conscience be as clear as mine, and may you be as moral and religious as I am. Because that's the way he saw it. He's lauded by many liberal theologians as a prophet for our age, and I would agree. I genuinely think he was a prophet of how the world thinks about God and thinks about faith. I am more religious than you because I figured this out on my own. Why does it always seem like these kind of books and that seem to have more effect than all the good ones? You know, you think about the faith for Christ, faith for or the case for case Christ. For Christ. And those, all these different books, Billy Graham, all that, and it just seems like this is what seems to make a bigger effect. Except, I, I hear you, except Sheen got two Emmys. Best-selling book in history of, of mankind is still the Bible. Anybody know what the what the most-watched movie of all time is? Oh, the Jesus Let's talk about this. Campus Crusade for Christ. Gets started here in 1951. Um, interestingly, they were one of the loudest shouters and jump up and downers of Last Temptation of Christ on our campus when that came out. Anyway, Bill Bright, entrepreneur from out Oklahoma, began attending First Presbyterian Church in Hollywood. Even though that's a PCA church, which was extremely liberal, was already starting to get very liberal, that particular congregation, extremely conservative and evangelical in its theology. It was this black sheep, white sheep, however you want to look at that, of the, uh, of the of the denomination. In fact, it's the church where Henrietta Mears was the Christian education director. So, okay, we've got one person nodding. Anybody else know who Henrietta Mears was? Founded gospel Light publishers in 1933, provided 35 years' worth of her curriculum, just rocked. 90% of the curriculum you see out there is based, at least one degree or another, off of the work of Henrietta Mears. Awesome educator. Anyway. That book that Billy Graham really recommended. Was yes. Right, about, yep. She was, was actually. Read the Bible or something. She was actually one of his mentors. I don't remember the name of it. Yeah. Um, so Bill Bright accepted Christ at that church in 1944, and he started taking classes at Fuller Theological Seminary. Remember when we talked about that a couple of weeks ago? But his real heart poked in when he started reaching out to students of UCLA there in Los Angeles. Taking a nod from the recent Billy Graham crusade, remember we talked about last week his big crusade that he did? He's like, no, this is a campus crusade. It's not a citywide crusade like Billy Graham did. It's a campus crusade. So he started a new outreach group, and he led the ministry for 50 years! 1951 to 2001, when he finally was so sick, he had to step down from ministry, because he couldn't physically do it anymore. 1998, he summarized his life and work, saying, for the last 50 years... I have made every decision in light of this question. How will this decision affect the fulfilling of the Great Commission? What's the Great Commission? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Make disciples. Not just just share the gospel, but make new disciples in Christ. Teach them. 1956, he made a tract to help walk people through a gospel message. Anybody remember what this is called? Four Spiritual Laws. That's right. Have you heard of the Four Spiritual Laws? The booklet was never intended as something to be handed out to someone. It was not something I hand to Christie and say, read this. It's something that I say, can I walk through this with you? I'm supposed to read it with you. The whole point was that you engage, you interact with people. And explain the progression of four spiritual laws. That God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That man is sinful and by definition separated from God. He can't get to God on his own. Law three, that Jesus is God's only provision, that bridge between man and God for man's sin. And then through him you can know and experience God's love and plan. Law four, you access that bridge through belief. You have to individually receive, you have to make a decision to follow Jesus Christ as your Savior. It's, it's not just momentum. Momentum sends you over the cliff. It's the bridge that gets you from, from one side to the other. You have to believe. Basic synopsis. Is it perfect? No. Is it good? Yep. Now, two generations of Christians, depending on how you define generations, have walked through the four spiritual laws together over 55 years. That's, that's kind of impressive. It changes things. It changed how the world looked at well, what is the good news when we talk about that? What, what do we mean? And this gave evangelicals a snapshot. Very simple, very simplified, but a snapshot so that people know, yeah, I could do that. 1979, Campus Crusade financed the production of Jesus, i.e., the Jesus film, which was based on the narrative of the Gospel of Luke. It tried to be as historically accurate as it could. It's been translated into 1,400 different languages, 1,400 more every year. and more every year. Film has been freely distributed throughout the world. Our little church in Ohio, we helped in the distribution process when they did another push of this, where they were trying to send a VHS copy to every address in the United States. As much as they could, they finally said, okay, within multiple different zip codes, we'll try, our we'll best. So we, we took a zip code and we said, we will send out VHS copies to all of these. Corey Campus Crusade, over 3 billion people. Have viewed this movie over five billion times, making it the most watched movie in human history. Now, yes, you're right. A lot of the a lot of the the, the books and movies that are ripping Christianity down get a lot of airplay. But a lot of the stuff that builds Christ up, that builds the Bible up in our minds, that builds people up, are huge. We just never hear about them. You go, yeah, the most watched movie of all time, the Jesus film. The most purchased book of all time? Yeah, the Bible. But if I were to say to a general secular audience, what's the most watched movie of all time? They're like, I don't know. Star Wars? I mean, it's clueless. Absolutely clueless. There's not one laser blast in (laughs) the Jesus film, and so it just doesn't get a lot of airplay. They still solicit. I got mail this week. Oh, did you? to uh, places where they wanted... Oh, man, that is neat. I didn't get that. I didn't think that was good. So many ministries, though. They've got so many irons in the fire all around the world. Campus Crusade decided to rebrand themselves in 2011. They said, we're really not a campus ministry anymore. Yes, we do things on campus, but we're not really a campus crusade anymore. Ooh, crusade? You know, that's going to come off bad. Uh, people don't like the, the term crusade for Christ. It could be offensive to non-Christians, especially Muslims, for whom crusade you know conjures up medieval images. So they decided to drop that part off their name so that they could better reach people they said you know we found out that 20% of the people who were willing to listen to us stopped being willing to listen to us when they heard our name so we're getting rid of we're getting rid of that and so as of January of 2012 they're now just crew it's not an acronym not even a word <laughs> it's just crew some people said oh it's brilliant that's awesome you you, you removed all the different impediments, man. That's awesome. That's great. What did other people say? Just, if you if you don't even remember what people said about this, can you imagine how some people might be upset with this? Well, how so? Could you find an actual word? Okay. Thank you. As a grammarian, you said, there, there are words out there, you know. It's caused a lot of confusion on the college campus. Like, oh. What on earth is that? Why would I go with that? What's proof? Which a long go, Ooh, see, word of mouth. They want to know. You. No, they want to know. They have no idea what you're doing. People come up and be like, "Oh, it's a Christian group." Oh, okay. Bye. You want to be part of a crew? Motley crew? I don't know what you're doing. not? I mean, there's a cross, but. ish. Does that, <laughs> no, I mean seriously. Does that? It is a cross. But would you look at that and automatically assume that's a cross? Could it be a plus sign? Could it be different sort of thing? Is it a star? Okay, you know, the biggest thing that people had in, in 2012 was wait, you dropped Christ from your name because it might undermine your ability to share Christ with people? You actually removed that? Now you might sit there and go our church name doesn't have Christ in it. It doesn't mean we don't. Well, But the idea of dropping Christ because you said that seemed to be a stumbling block for people. Jesus was a stumbling block in our sharing of the gospel. But uh, the Vice President, Steve Sellers, said, Our commitment is to Jesus Christ. We debated long and hard about whether to keep the name in, in the name. We concluded that to put it in the name of the organization isn't really the most important issue. We need to be sharing Christ, not necessarily saying the name every time we say the name of our ministry. Again, it speaks volumes of how you tend to look at outreach, or how you tend to look at tradition, or how you tend to look at crew. If you say, oh, that makes total sense. Yeah, as long as they stay commitment to the gospel, Oh well, yeah, whatever, whatever impediments you have to remove to to make that work, I'm great with that. Or if you go, you took Christ out. I don't know. It tells me something about where you're at, and I'm not yeah, I'm with the same. If, from a Marian perspective, proof from Christ doesn't quite have the same kind of ring as proof saved Christ, so you could kind of make an argument to like how it sounds rather than just like just taking the Christ out and it's not looking. Of like Absolutely. Absolutely. Once you've decided that the saved is bad, <laughs> let's make it work. <laughs> Churches that, when they're building, I've heard debate if they should have a cross or not. Mm-hmm. Because they yes. don't want to offend people, they don't want it to look like a church and, and push people away. There's pluses and minuses to that. You just got to stop and think, why are you doing it? Because you're ashamed, or because you say, no, we fully intend to show this in other ways. Today, Cruz sends up more than 25,000 missionaries into nearly 200 countries, representing 99.6 percent of the world's population, which is awesome. Annual budget of 570 million dollars, making it by far the largest ministry in the world that isn't itself a church. It's kind of cool. Yeah, I'm gonna do one last thing. 1952, Compassion International is founded. This is important for all sorts of reasons. Um, 1952, evangelist named Everett Swanson goes to South Korea to share the gospel to the soldiers there. While he's in Seoul, he's like, "Wait, war orphans are treated pretty badly over here. Orphanages." just don't even take them in. They starve in the streets. As, as, as their website puts it, one morning he saw city workers scoop up what looked like piles of rags, toss them in the back of the truck, and he walked up to the truck for a closer look, and was horrified to see that the piles were not rags, but the frozen bodies of orphans who had died overnight in the streets. And they would just do this on a regular basis. He immediately said, we got to raise funds for this. We've got to do something to take care of these kids. Started with a single check for $50 when he got back. Started this ministry for children ultimately calling it Compassion International in reference to Matthew 15 where Jesus said, I have compassion for these people. I don't want to send them away hungry. 1954, Compassion International establishes a system where you can sponsor a child. Your household can sponsor a child on a monthly for a month and that way it saved him having to run around doing all this fundraising all the time and they could put more money into actually reaching out to the kids. Their focus has not always just been on keeping kids alive and off the street, but on building communities. There's a really interesting—I don't have time to go through this. There's a really interesting graphic you're talking about. You know, one of the best things that we can do is just help girls go to school. Just that. Do you realize what that does? And there are all these percentages, all these numbers about if you can just help a little girl go to school. How does this help the community? How does this change the economy? Um, How does this create fewer family problems and fewer children out on the streets? even one year of schooling increases a girl's individual earning power by 10 to 20%. Just get her to school and pay for that. I mean, all these different ways that they're saying we can work to change the community. The idea is that, yes, we want to help children. We want to make sure that they get fed. Yes, we want to make sure they got clothing, nourishment, etc. But then, let's make sure that they get an education. Let's make sure that their their community environment is safe. Let's make sure that they have clean drinking water. Let's make sure that they have medical provisions. Let's. Instead of just holding somebody's hand, let's change their world. Let's, let's show them Christ in tangible sorts of ways. They repeatedly received a four-star rating as a, as a world charity organization. 92.6% of the, of the money they have coming in goes out to either direct ministry to children or to fundraising efforts to make sure that they have money to send to children. A grand Wappen, 7.4% of the money that's given to them goes toward making sure that the corporation itself keeps going training, all that kind of stuff. It's really quite impressive. Today, CI provides direct aid to 1.7 million children in 26 different countries, which is kind of awesome. In fact, secular publications like the Journal of Economics and Political Economy have said, yes, they are significant forces for change in the world. They have significantly affected, positively affected communities around the world. I say all that because as of Thursday, there will only be 25 countries. I don't know if you've been hearing about this. But as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, the Indian subcontinent was divvied up between Pakistan and India and Bangladesh, with Pakistan being Muslim and India being Hindu, right? And ever since then, they, India has been actively trying to Hinduize themselves, and cracking down on more and more outside non-Hindu organizations. 19, or in 2016, it placed CIA on a list of organizations that need government approval to remain, and then didn't give them their approval. World Vision is still over there, but even that is... Uh, under some questions with some things. CI currently employs 6,000 workers and in, in 589 Indian staff. So it's not even like bringing people over. He's like, no, no, Indian staff development centers reaching more than 145,000 children in India. But as of Thursday, those are all going to get closed by the by the Indian government and CI will cease to exist after 48 ministries, there, or 48 years of ministry there. India is the world's largest democracy but they have tons of poverty there. A third of their population are children. Of the roughly 472 million children, 33 million are child laborers, 80 million have no education, 97 million are undernourished, but the Indian government has no formal structure to take care of its poor, because they've allowed other countries to come in and do that. CIA estimates that at least 80% of the children they've been sponsoring will fall through the cracks. It's just what's going to happen. So, I want you to pray for India. I want you to pray for the Indian children. I want you to pray for CI this week. This is why I want to make sure, I know we're going a little over, but this is why I want to make sure we hit this this week. Because Thursday is going to be really, really hard for millions of people in terms of ripple effects. But, I want to end on this. CI hasn't given up on India. They had to leave Indonesia in 1985, but worked to get back into Indonesia in 1988. And they're praying that that's what's going to happen in India. Their current president CEO, uh, Jimmy Mayado says, if, if we want to go to the low-risk route, it, it'll be easier for us to retreat to Latin America. It's very open to Christianity. But India alone has just a little under 30% of the 400 million children who live in extreme poverty in the world. We have to figure this out. So pray that they can figure out how to get back in there and that other ministries can pick up some of that slack. So this isn't lost cause, but it is something we need to take very, very seriously. Oh, that's the same year that Mere Christianity was published. Let's start on that next week. Why don't you pray for us, for, the, for any to help that we can all pray together? Absolutely, absolutely. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you for everything that's gone before. I thank you for all the people who had a good heart, who did the right thing for the right reasons before. And I thank you, I thank you, even for some of those people that did really messed up things that we can look at and say, that's not the kind of Christian I want to be. That's not the kind of Christ I want to mangle you to look like. Lord, help us to live out your heart and to live out your word, to delve into your word and really understand it, to understand and live this out on a daily basis to those people around us. And we pray specifically for other Christians in in India, for, for other Hindu organizations in India, for Muslim organizations in India, to step forward and to try to help the children that Compassion International has been helping. We pray that you you work to get that ministry back in there. We pray for all those children, and thus all those families, and thus all those communities that will be affected by this starting on Thursday. Lord, we pray. We know that hard things can be be a, a, a pebble plumped into the lake with really bad, hard, scary ripples. We pray, Lord, that you combat that with really good ripples. Demonstrate your sovereignty. Give them faith in your strength. Help us never to judge based on circumstances, but always to judge based on faith in you and your character. I give this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.